power of the cross. Amen. Luke 23, our sermon text for this morning, verses 39 through 49. This is God's word. He gives it to his people for our good, inspired by the Holy Spirit, without error or perfect to accomplish his saving purposes. Let us give our attention to its reading as we gather around God's word. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. The grass withers. Flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. So, Heavenly Father, we come before your word trembling, and we ask for your spirit to illumine this scripture to us that we may glorify you, worship, and serve you rightly. We confess once more that we need your help. And so, Father, we ask by your grace that you would come and help, that you would administer your good grace and gospel to us according to the various needs that we have, which are so many and too many to number. Come and help us now, in Christ's name. Amen. It is a problem of our world today that many people desire and have a problem with constantly wanting to keep their options open. They want to go down a path that will allow them to make a differing decision at some point. They can jump off that path if it's shown to them that they can change their mind. And so this is a a constant problem, and recent studies have shown that this is actually a very unhealthy way to live your life. You make nothing but reversible decisions, and you're constantly thinking about what alternatives you might employ. I can change my mind here or there, jump off this path, and realign myself in this way. It's been shown recently that 
irreversible decisions are actually much healthier, you stop thinking about alternatives and you stop obsessing about what you might have done or what you could do at any moment in the future. It's sort of the, the law of the, the excluded middle, the, the law of logic that says that you approach things and there is no, no middle ground. Something is either true or it's false. Your pastor is either standing up in front of you preaching or he isn't. And this problem of, of keeping your options open, we, we see that in this text here today. And the way that the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ disallows that as a, an option for your soul, just as it, it's, it's healthy for your mind to understand that there are some decisions that are irreversible, stop thinking about alternatives, so it is ultimately healthy for your soul to know that with Christ, uh, you cannot keep your options open. The resurrection has mandated that all people everywhere turn to him in faith and repentance. And that is the call of the gospel that we see and that Luke brings us to in this passage. Here's our life-transforming reality for today's sermon. Jesus, the innocent one, was crucified to bear God's wrath on the cross. Even while on the cross, he shows his love and grace in saving the worst of sinners. But now he is risen and exalted as king and judge. And he demands repentance and faith from everyone. Now he is risen and exalted as king and judge. And he demands repentance and faith from everyone. Here's how we'll divide this passage into three ideas. First, the fear of God and a friend of God. The fear of God and a friend of God. Secondly, cosmic signs and conversion. Cosmic signs and conversion. And lastly, resurrection and repentance. Resurrection and Repentance. First, then, the fear of God and a friend of God. This is uh, Luke's portrayal, the account of the crucifixion, and in this passage he rounds out a couple of pictures that he has been painting of Jesus the Christ as he has brought the story of the cross, this pinnacle moment in history, as he has brought it to a close. The first one is the mocking that Jesus has endured. Remember, we saw that from Psalm 22. As the suffering Messiah, the suffering Savior and servant, Jesus is mocked uh, before the world. And it, it reaches a low point here in this passage. It began with the religious leaders in Israel, and then it moved to the Roman soldiers. And now even a criminal, even a criminal joins in the mocking of Jesus. In other gospel accounts, it says that both criminals mock Jesus. And this causes some people to say, well, uh, Luke makes up this story for dramatic effect, right? He's, he's made this up, and it didn't actually happen in history, that one of the criminals who was crucified next to Jesus um, confessed him or believed in him. As biblical Christians, we know that the word of God is always true. It, it is without error, and it is with that conviction and that belief that we form our conclusions about the biblical text. And so a very reasonable way to explain that is that um, one, gospel, one gospel story emphasizes that at the beginning of the crucifixion of Jesus, it's very possible that both criminals were joining in the mocking of Jesus. And as told in one of the other gospels, that brings out that whole mocking of Jesus theme, that people are joining in the mocking of him. 
But it's also quite reasonable to say that as one of the criminals is watching all of this unfold, as he sees all of the signs that are manifested in heaven and on the earth, and all the things that transpire as Jesus is on the cross, that he is very literally converted, and he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Thus, it is not incorrect to say that at one point, both criminals were mocking Jesus, and at another point, only one is mocking Jesus, and it brings out different aspects of the story. It's how we balance the story of Christ and his life as it's given to us in the Gospels. That's how uh, someone who believes in the authority of Scripture would come to certain conclusions about how that might be explained. So it's not a problem at all. We read here in, in Luke that one of the criminals mocks Jesus and the other confesses him. The first one who mocks him, Luke says in our translation that he hurled insults at him. It's actually a bit more serious than that. Luke uses the verb blaspheme. He blasphemes Jesus. And that tells us all kinds of things about who Jesus is and what it means to honor God and to have the fear of God. Because the other criminal who's hanging there on the other side of Jesus, he says, don't you fear God. He rebukes him as this man has mockingly asked for his salvation. Jesus, save yourself and us. You see how, how mockingly uh, he speaks to Jesus. If you're so powerful, save yourself and us. And this other criminal says, don't, don't you fear God. See, he's going to be the one who honestly pursues salvation. There's this irony. The first criminal who mocks Jesus sort of mockingly has this appeal, this petition for salvation. Save, save me if you're so powerful. The other one will say, Jesus, please, please save me. What is the fear of God? We read in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It's foundational to those who live according to God and his word. The fear of God is about allowing his word and his truth to shape your conviction about who he is, about who you are, and about how you live your life. It's the, the posture of a person that says, God makes the rules, God is my Lord, he's my creator, he's my judge, he tells me what is right and what is wrong. That's a large part of what the fear of God is. A person who does not have the fear of God believes that ultimately nothing he does ever matters. So then life becomes whatever you can make of it. Last Sunday night, our young people's got together. We talked a little bit about this theme as we thought uh, about people who live just purely by hedonism, pursuing pleasure all of the time. We talked about, there was, uh, in London several years ago, there was this uh, atheist organization that placed a... Uh, sort of an advertisement on the, the side of buses in London. And really what they were advertising was a, a worldview, right? not a product. On the side of a, of a bus, it read this, there is probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And uh, we talked about this, we watched this video together. This video was saying how that word probably really makes all of the difference, doesn't it? And if you go up to somebody and say, uh, this parachute will probably open, go ahead and jump out of the plane. And it makes all of the difference. But this uh, side of the bus, this message is basically this. Uh, 
God probably doesn't exist, so live your life however you want. Define right and wrong for yourself. Pursue whatever you think is best. And that is to lack the fear of God. That is to live without the fear of God. My life is my own. I'm the captain of my soul. All these kinds of things. The Puritans were known especially for their spiritual disciplines. And and what they were, were always trying to do was to go to God's word and say... What are the truths that are repeatedly given to us in God's word and how can we keep those in the front of our minds? And so they they had basically seven foundational categories of of spiritual truths and each and every day was about living in light of all of these things. And two of those were this, the certainty of death and the finality of judgment. Certainty of death and the finality of judgment. It is appointed for man once to die and then to face death. The judgment. Live your life in light of the end. Live your life in light of what is coming. The fear of God. In Romans chapter 3, Paul gives his quintessential description of sinners and how does he end it? He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In the Psalms, that is where he, he gets that reference and that particular Psalm says this, The wicked man flatters himself in his own eyes, thinking his iniquity cannot be found out. He thinks that there will never be a reaping of what he sows. He thinks that he will never stand before his creator, because probably he pays no mind in thinking that there is a creator. I remember when I was in... um, college and there was this uh, online community, I think they called themselves the Rational Response Squad, and they wanted to show how committed they were to their atheism. So they went and, and they were trying, it really was a, a pathetic display, they showed they didn't really know how to interpret scripture as well, but they said, okay, the bla- Jesus says the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin, so let's try to find out what that is, and then let's record ourselves committing that sin. It's sort of flaunting their, uh, their lack of the fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this criminal rebukes, the second criminal rebukes the first. And he shows us that the fear of God is found in honoring the Son of God. The fear of God is found in honoring Jesus, in believing in him, in honoring him, in worshiping him, in submitting to him. We read in the Bible, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. That is, honor the Son as you honor the Father. Show, confess Him to be God of God, light of light. That is why the fringe groups that have broken off from historic Christianity that do not say that Jesus Christ is fully God are in error because they are not honoring the Son as they honor the Father. They do not confess Him to be what God's word reveals. To honor Jesus is to fear God. To mock him is to blaspheme. It's actually an astounding affirmation of the deity of Christ. When you do not fear God, you live as if the last day, the day of judgment, will never come. Biblical faith is living each and every day as if it were the last day. Because on the last day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who live in biblical faith live each and every day bending their knee to Jesus and confessing him with their mouth that he is Lord. So ask yourself, is your confession in line with that truth, that Christ is Lord? Is your life in line with that truth? Are you living today 
manifesting what will be true of everyone on the last day. Let, let that last day, when we all bend the knee to Jesus Christ, let it be uh, familiar to you. Let it be the aim of your life that when everyone who has ever lived bends the knee to Christ and confesses him as Lord, that it's familiar. You're bending your knee to the King that you have known all along. And you take great joy in seeing him. This second criminal shows us repentance, doesn't he? He uh, says in verse 41, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our sins deserve. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that true repentance arises out of a true sense of one's own sin. A true sense of one's own sin. And it also includes grief and hatred of one's sin. Someone who is truly repentant does not look at the law of God, does not look at the word of God and say, well, I can kind of make an argument for myself here. We don't become our own lawyer. What's that uh, old proverb? The one who has himself as a lawyer also has a fool for a client. That's true if you try to argue yourself and your righteousness before God. True repentance is saying, I need help that comes from outside of me. Why do we say in the beginning of our worship services, our help is in the name of the Lord? Because we can't help ourselves out of our sinfulness. We can't help ourselves out of our pit of despair. We need the God of grace to reach down and to pull us out and to set our feet on solid ground. I heard this past week, Someone was talking about this new age spirituality that is really widespread in our society. This journey of self-fulfillment and finding who you really are. And they said that this kind of, of spirituality is a journey from the self to the self. From the self to the self. And I thought, how sad and bankrupt is that? They're literally saying that they're going nowhere. It's a journey from the self to the self. Biblical spirituality begins from God and it brings the creature to God. Grace begins with God and he comes down, he condescends and he brings us to himself. And so this man shows that there is a a bankruptcy, a spiritual bankruptcy inside of him. And he shows us true repentance, not making a case for himself. He also shows this beautiful picture of faith. And the beautiful picture of faith that he shows us is that he's really the first one to get the full picture in the Gospel of Luke. You think of all the people who have made these demands of Jesus Christ as he has gone through his ministry and as he's given sign after sign and shown himself to be powerful, raising people from the dead rebuking uh, disease and demons and showing his power over the fallenness in this world. But each time he gives a sign, what he creates is a greater appetite, or what that creates is a greater appetite in the eyes of many for more signs. Show us your power. Show us that you truly are the Christ. That's the spirit of unbelief. that They want to see and behold more with their eyes. But this man sees that Jesus still has a life and a blessedness beyond his crucifixion. One commentator put it beautifully. He said, many saw Jesus raise the dead and did not believe. And Jesus has raised the dead throughout the Gospel of Luke. Many saw Jesus raise the dead and did not believe. This man sees Jesus being put to death and yet believes. 
He sees Jesus being put to death and yet believes. So what he is beholding with his eyes does not intrude upon his faith that he sees the greater reality. That's biblical faith. We've been talking about the necessity of biblical faith. That sometimes what you see with your eyes, sometimes what you experience in your life, it's going to feel like there's a discord between that and the blessedness that God has promised you. What do you do? You hold on to faith. You believe what God has said in his word. You believe the blessedness and the life in Christ that has been given to you and that you have now by the power of the Spirit and through the gospel. Do you hope in what you see or do you hope in what God says? Hope in what God says and place all of your faith there. There's this wonderful exchange of blessing. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's that enthronement language. He's seeing that Jesus still has that life and blessedness that is beyond the cross. So even as Jesus is on the cross, he's seeing the exaltation of Christ with the eyes of faith. Scribes and and, uh, scholars have puzzled over this through the centuries because this is such a strange interaction for someone to address Jesus just by his human name. That he doesn't say Lord, he doesn't say teacher, he just says Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Using that human name of Jesus as the substitute for sinners. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. There is a deep affection and love here uh, between this criminal and Jesus. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Uh, The heart of faith yields great blessing from God. Jesus says, the one who believes, eternal life awaits him in the age to come. Just like our assurance of grace this morning. Whoever believes in him will not perish. The heart of faith yields great blessing from God. So Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And, And gives, he shows the great blessing that awaits those who believe in the Son. This word for paradise has caused a lot of discussion as well. And essentially, it is the word for heaven. Other places in scripture, it's called Abraham's bosom. It's the place of the souls, those who die in the Lord, who are immediately brought into the presence of Christ. After the resurrection of Christ, Jesus transformed or, or made this experience even much better. As we see in the book of Revelation, the souls of those who are raised up into heaven are worshiping the lamb who was slain. So it's not a, it's not a soul sleep It is what we think of now as heaven, the souls of those who await their resurrection bodies. This is the the great blessedness of those who die in the Lord now until Christ comes again. It's a great hope for the soul that immediately upon death you are brought into the presence of your Lord. This is such a wonderful picture of the grace of God. It, it, It brings it to us and shows how deep and how wide and how vast the grace of God is. The first will be last. The last will be first. Here you have a criminal, someone who would be in that class of, of the worst of sinners, like Barabbas or even like Zacchaeus, uh, the one, the tax collector whom Jesus saved earlier in the gospel. The worst of sinners. And the grace of God reaches out and saves him, even under his dying breath. Such a wonderful picture of grace. And to the, to the heart who has been transformed and changed by the grace of God, we are not filled with bitterness at such a thing. We rejoice at such a thing. 
The people of God need to rejoice and have it their aim to see God work and move in this world that lives and hearts would be changed by the grace of God. That we would have an outward face that the grace of God would go through the world and assemble God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Oscar Wilde was an an author, writer, who lived really a reprehensible lifestyle. It's difficult even to wade through the the most minute details. And uh, many accounts of his death say that on his deathbed, he was crying out to talk to ministers about what the, the, the grace of God really was. And there were some people who believed that on his deathbed, he came to faith in Christ. It's that kind of thing that, over which we need to rejoice. We root that joy in the fact that we all were enemies of God in our sin, but we become friends in Christ, this Christ who saves the worst of sinners. We also see the power, the great power of the Savior here, that he hangs on the cross and all of those who are gathered around the cross who are mocking him and saying, this man is not powerful, he cannot even save himself. So as his earthly life is taken from him by sinners, he still has the power and the authority to bestow eternal life. I'm an amazing paradox of the power of God. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. There's the the cosmic signs here and this conversion of this Roman soldier. Cosmic signs and conversion. People wonder about this darkness. What does it mean? Is it a supernatural cause or a providential coincidence? People have said, is this an eclipse? Is this an eclipse that just happens to transpire as Jesus is on the cross? Uh, No, it's not an eclipse because uh, we know according to the Jewish lunar calendar that it's impossible for an eclipse to happen during the day when there is a full moon. So this is actually a, a, a supernatural cause. What does it mean? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, we see that the the day of the Lord is accompanied by the sun being turned to darkness. So this is a a day of the Lord judgment type sign here. And what we see is that Jesus is, is coming under the wrath of God, the wrath and judgment of God. This is his day of the Lord, foreshadowing the final day of the Lord when the sun will once again be turned to darkness. I can't give a scientific explanation of exactly what it is because there really is no perfect scientific explanation for these kinds of things. This is the God who spoke the world into existence out of nothing. He can make time stand still. He can take away the light from the sun without this universe losing its warmth, all kinds of things. He is able to do that. But for three hours on the cross, Jesus undergoes the wrath of God The wrath of God that would have sent to hell everyone who would ever believe in him. This truth is under attack today. That Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. But this is the sign that we know it is true. This darkness when Jesus hung on the cross. When we say in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell, this is what we mean. That on the cross, as he suffered and died, he was undergoing that same wrath that would have sent you and me to hell if we did not believe in him. In that sense, as he hangs on the cross, he goes to hell for us. And he absorbs the wrath of God that we might enjoy the bliss and blessing of salvation. The second of these great signs is the temple curtain. The temple curtain is torn in two. 
And this is not so much showing us that we have access into the Holy of Holies as it does the saving presence of God, the the holy and majestic presence of God can move outward into the world because of the work of Christ. You think of Nadab and Abihu. We considered that last Sunday evening. They offer up strange fire in the altar and immediately their lives are taken from them because the holy and awesome presence of God. But because of the priesthood of Christ, because of his offering of his death, that saving presence of God is no longer held, especially there at the temple in Jerusalem. It can go outwards so that we can, in South Holland, Illinois, come in the name of Jesus Christ and enter the throne room with confidence because of what Jesus does. This brings us at last to the death of Jesus, the real, actual death of the Lord. He says, he quotes from Psalm 31, as he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is an act of, of devotion of Jesus. What he's doing is he's offering up all of his life. He's giving his life as an offering. And it is a sufficient offering. What he's doing is saying, the work, uh, my work is finished And it remains to you, Father, to vindicate my name to the world. It remains to you to raise me up, to vindicate me, and to vindicate your holiness. So dies Jesus of Nazareth, peaceful and forgiving, even granting salvation to the worst of sinners. Three hours under the anguish of the wrath of God. See, this is why you you can't focus in exclusively on the physical sufferings of Jesus because he comes under the wrath of God and there is a spiritual anguish there that we could never fully comprehend. The one who has created all things hangs there. We read in the Gospel of Matthew that there is an earthquake as Jesus dies. The creation could not be silent about the creator. And then we see this conversion of the soldier who praises God immediately as Jesus dies. That seems odd, doesn't it? That someone praises God right as the Lord himself dies. But that is sort of the paradox of Christian worship in this time and between the times. We worship the Lamb who was slain. True Christian worship is centered around the cross and the resurrection, even though this was a great earthly injustice that transpired, that Jesus Christ was handed over into the hands of sinners and crucify, even still we rejoice and exult because the innocent one stood there for the guilty, for you and for me. This brings us to the reaction. What will our reaction be? Luke's point here is uh, that it's because of the resurrection of Christ, keeping your options open is not something you can do with Jesus. We see that uh, the, the crowds who have sort of been beholding this, and the theme there in Luke is that they're seeing something with their eyes, but the call of faith is to look beyond what you see with your eyes. And even the followers of Jesus stand at a distance because they're confused, they're grieved, they don't know what to make of it, but the resurrection is going to transform all that. The resurrection is going to change all that so that there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. And in in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, it says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. When it comes to Jesus Christ, you either have faith and repentance or in blasphemy you reject him. So no one can stand anymore at a distance in confusion about what to think about Jesus. You must know where you stand with him. Do you believe in him? 
Do you trust his work? Or do you live in rejection of him? This is the one who still tells us now and forever, who still tells all who believe in him, you will be with me in paradise. But what we need is repentance and faith in this Jesus, crucified for sin and risen. Through the gospel, he gives you the opportunity to bend the knee today. For one day, all will do that. All will confess Jesus Christ to be the Lord. Do you do that now? Do you do that now? There is no middle ground. Look to the Savior in repentance and faith. Trust in the sufficiency of his work for you. Remember the price that was paid for you. He is our only comfort in life and in death. Repent and believe in him. Trust in him and follow him all your days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a matchless God. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for the power of the cross. Jesus, the name that charms our fears. We pray that in him you will continue to look upon us. Give us grace to always have faith, knowing that we are saved by faith alone, by your grace alone. Keep us in that faith until the last day, dependent upon you, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our own righteousness, trusting in the righteousness of our Savior. You are holy, holy, holy. May that confession be impressed deeply upon our hearts and minds, and may we remember that the Holy God saved us through his Son, himself, the Holy Lamb, who was slain. In his name we pray. Amen. Respond to God.